That whole culture war thing might not be quite the flex that the right thought it was, but maybe it is. We'll talk about it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Well, here we are, Ravi, another week, uh, week three of The Citizen Stewart Show, and we got a lot to talk about. But before we jump in, what is up with you? Well, yesterday I took, I'm a huge Buffalo Bills fan. I, I can't remember if I've told you this, but... I took my whole family, eight people, to the Bills-Jets game yesterday. Unfortunately, we lost, but it was quite an experience. And I was, you know, had this experience of sitting in the parking lot with my dad, waiting for everybody else to arrive. And I don't know if you know this, but my dad's like a big Trump conservative. I did not know this. <laughs> and he had flirted with running with for state senate in New York State. Uh, for a Manhattan State Senate district, which is you know a suicide mission for a Republican, and we're sitting there, and he says to me in the parking lot, "Hey, I think I got a shot to win." And I was like, "What do you mean you got a shot to win? Win what?" He was like, "He's like my Senate State Senate seat," and I was like, "Wait, you're still on the ballot?" And so they started texting some of my friends, and it turns out my dad is on the ballot, uh, which is today for our listeners, which is Tuesday. We're recording this on Monday. My dad is on the ballot uh, this election day as a state Senate candidate in uh, Manhattan. Uh, by the time you listen to this, that race will, the, the polls will have closed in that race in all likelihood. Just a really strange experience as a former uh, Democratic operative to have a dad on the ballot as a Republican. Well, I think this is going to be a really interesting Thanksgiving for a lot of families. I think there are probably more mixed families, politically mixed families than ever in history. Uh, we have seen all this information around Zen, Gen Z, too, by the way, uh, recently come out, and it's been around how fluid they are as a generation and how different politically and uh, how they don't love institutions, all that. I think uh, you've heard me say this before, a family like mine that has a Gen Xer at the top, which is me. You know, I'm the top of the totem. Everybody else is the bottom of the totem for me, right? And then we have two millennials. Sound like a Gen Xer. The world revolves around you. Yeah, I see. Yeah. No, no, no. Gen Xers, we just keep the world together and we don't brag about it. We're just kind of the silent thing that holds everything together. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, two millennials. Wow. (laughs) Two millennials and then two uh, Gen Zers and then one Gen Alpha in one family. Uh, And I imagine the type of experience you just talked about. You have you being on one side of this politics, uh, your dad, and then your friends and others. This could be a very interesting Thanksgiving season. Uh, and we'll see what yeah. comes of it after people do their voting. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I'm really fascinated to see what happens. It sounds like there's a lot of potential scenarios for tomorrow, today, for the listeners. And we will cover it in our next episode and with, with the freedom that a C3 allows us to cover an election after it happens. <laughs> so we'll have a lot to say there. There's a lot of education topics on the ballot. But like every episode, we're going to talk today about one thing that makes us mad, one thing that gives us hope, one thing that makes us think. Chris, uh, let's start with what makes us mad. What's making you mad this week? You know that there's talk again about... Uh, the governor of Virginia, Youngkin, about how he was like the model. He's very telegenic. He uh, tapped into some, you know, pro-parent uh, uh, fervor there in Virginia to become like the first statewide uh, Republican in years to win anything. And a lot of it is attributed to the fact that he brought a kinder, gentler way to be a Republican, which was to say, hey, you know, we should be about parental rights. We should, you know, parents should have more say in schools. Uh, he ran against someone who had, oh, less 
favorable view of parents uh, and was much more establishment uh, when it comes to education and his view of things. And now it looks like the good telegenic uh, governor of Yunkin has become kind of the great hope of conservatives nationally. Maybe if they could be a little bit more like him, they can catch on this juggernaut. But what's interesting about the parent, the parent, pro-parent juggernaut is that it started with gripes around what was being taught in schools, uh, critical race theory. And it turns out Americans really still don't know very much about what that is. And it's hard to keep them occupied, keep their minds occupied on that. So what's the replacement for the race-based uh, uh, kind of bait in all of this parental rights stuff, it's actually trans people and gay people. And that has been way more enduring because that pulls well across the board uh, in terms of things that, you know, wedge issues, people that are really upset about. So what makes me mad is that everything I just said has nothing to do with education. Everything that I just said has nothing to do with teaching and uh, teaching, learning, assessment, data, how you run schools, how you think about schools. It's all sophistry. It's all like icing on some worthless cake. Um, and that's what makes me mad, is that we have become such a candy culture that we can't even talk about the substantive issues. And, you know, Ravi, just to turn the knife a little bit, Glenn Youngkin actually has a pretty decent education plan when you get away from the wedge yeah, issues. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. When you get away I from was, the wedge I, stuff. I totally agree. Yeah. He doesn't need to do the wedge stuff. <laughs> There's actually some stuff under that that makes a lot of sense. And this is actually, I think, a theme with some, and I want to emphasize some conservative governors around the country, is that they can't get out of their own way. But the proximate news story here, just to, to give our audience a sense of like why today are we talking about this, is that on November 3rd, a couple of days ago, the Washington Post reported, and this is Laura Vazella and Nate Jones had an article about how when Youngkin ran... He was stoking all this anger, as you talked about, about the curriculum choices in school, the so-called CRT debate, critical race theory. And as part of that, right after taking office, he promised uh, a parental hotline, an email address where parents could <laughs> and students could email, I guess they could call as well, to complain and and just give Yunkin's office a heads up about problematic curriculum around the state. And reporters have been trying to get a hold of the complaints to get a sense of, well, Yunkin and a lot of these people are about transparency. So let's see what's going on. Let's see this epidemic of critical race theory being taught in schools. Yunkin fought them every step of the way, claimed that this was an exemption from the Freedom of Information Act in Virginia under, quote, working papers and correspondence of the government's office. He wound up, I think, sensing he was going to lose. He, he basically settled that he would release 350 of the emails. There's a whole technical thing that I won't go into about why the 350 emails that were released. And when you look at these emails, it's there's not this epidemic of critical race theory being reported out from, at least from the reporting of the Washington Post, unless they're leaving something out of their reporting. There is, you know, one notable example is a high school senior in a rural area of Virginia reported his English teacher was... Uh, He's saying that on, Be uh, on Beowulf from a student, all my teacher wants to talk about is how the book is sexist because it portrays the warriors as men and not as women. Uh, I believe my teacher is in violation of Governor Youngkin's executive order, which prohibits the teaching of divisive topics. 
in quotes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's hardly this glaring example of, of teacher overreach. There was another example of uh, an assignment that was, quote, sympathetic to immigrants. There was another one where a parent complained that a move to online tutoring could be, quote, a potential path for unknown perverts. These are the kinds of complaints <laughs> we found. There was one notable complaint by this uh, special education advocate, this woman named Candice Lucas, who is a disabilities advocate representing families of special education students who had been a big Yunkin supporter, spoke at rallies allegedly for Yunkin alongside Yunkin's wife, uh, who had a, sent multiple complaints to this hotline and complained that she wasn't getting her complaints returned. So this sense that there was going to be this responsive, you know, this, this regime that was going to be responsive to these complaints from parents and be transparent doesn't seem to be either transparent or responsive. And I think I'm with you, Chris, like there, there's something real about what Yonkin proposed, uh, especially he had this huge plan around remedial education for students uh, who were impacted by the pandemic that I thought was fairly aggressive and made some sense. I gather he's probably a proponent of, of some aggressive school choice measures, which I, I always welcome. I imagine you do too. But this just seems like a confirmation that he might have been full of it on some of the core arguments he had around CRT. Either, you know, either full of it or pragmatic in a way that's detestable in politics, which is, I would prefer there to be like, um, I prefer there, to, I like clean politics. I like, you know, a society where the, you know, the best of ideas win and the people who can bring the best of ideas to fore uh, can actually have a fair contest. And we get a fair audience to it. That's so, uh, you know, that could seem so quaint of an idea because of where we are right now. But he's not a uh, dumb individual. In his cabinet, he has people, especially on the education side, who are proposing things around the way that the standards work and the way that the state assessment systems work uh, and the way that everything should be aligned. That is really smart. Like if you go and you look at the education plan there in the state, it's, it was much called for after years and years of Virginia kind of being lost in the wind. This other stuff, like half of his cabinet or half of his people in there are the really serious kind of education thinkers. And then he pulled in some really kind of quacks, some people like from the shallow end of the MAGA pool when it comes to politicians. He's got both going on in his cabinet. And the one side that gets the most attention is everything we're talking about right now. Like, why are we talking that the, the, the hotline was always a dumb thing. It was always a dumb thing to create a hotline for like education Karens to jump on the line and just complain about anything. Anytime government sets up these type of hotlines or companies, they get lots of cranks. They get like a ton yeah. of cranks. And it's just a known fact that that's what happens. I don't know why he couldn't have just won the primaries with this message and then come into office and governed fully with smart education policy. It's obvious that he has smart education policy in his back pocket. Yeah. And it, it's potentially that's kind of what he's doing. You know, he disbanded this hotline because there wasn't that much interest just a few months ago. And this is in line with the kind of deflation of the CRT debate nationally. Tucker Carlson mentioned it at least 130 times, the critical race theory between 2020 and 2021. You can't get any mention of that anymore. Uh, and as you said, they've shifted to the transgender debate as that being the parental rights stuff that they're talking about. And they are on pretty solid political ground, not moral ground. Uh, you know, if you look at the context, 9% of Biden voters cast a ballot for Yunkin 
uh, in that race. Education was critical to that. Uh, that was the beginning of and part of a shift where Democrats tend to poll better on education historically than Republicans, but it has flipped in recent years, whereas most recent polling shows that Republicans have an advantage of it. Uh, and you know, the most notable poll was from March, 2022 from Rasmussen that showed Republicans have an advantage. And then at the same poll, they asked voters about their support of the Florida Don't Say Gay bill, what they call the parental rights bill from the DeSantis camp. And you had 62% of likely voters supporting that law, including majorities in every racial group, 61% of black voters and 64% of other minority voters. So they they sense a, uh, a vulnerability of Democrats and they've moved on from the other traditional critical race theory stuff. I imagine that stuff will come back and they've moved on to the transgender debate. And Chris, I I haven't followed these debates as much as uh, a lot of other people, maybe because I'm not a parent. But if I can be vulnerable for a second, there there are real concerns of parents that I sometimes hear in this that I don't know what the right answer is. For example, the question of gender affirming care and whether a parent like has this quote unquote veto over that until a kid turns 18. I guess a question to you is, if you take the politics out of it and you just said to me, hey, a parent should sign off on any uh, surgery that a kid does, whether it's gender affirming care or anything else, that would seem to make sense to me. I think when you single out gender affirming care, it feels weird to me. But tell me as a parent, am I misreading what parents should have a right and don't have a right to? Um, do you know of a place where they don't have that right? I don't know. That's what I'm asking. Is like, it mm-hmm. seems to me because well, I'm I'll, asking I'll because this, you know, yeah, yeah, why, because why is this is issue? what. Well, because this is what's happening, as I see it from the political mm-hmm. perspective. Republicans mm-hmm. are pushing these laws. Democrats mm-hmm. are jumping to say, "Hey, parents shouldn't have that right." Not all Democrats, but a lot of them are saying that. And then Republicans are saying, "Look, you, you know, th- these Democrats, they don't want." your kid, they want your kid to be able to walk into a hospital and get a very serious surgery without your knowledge. And that's where I'm like confused, where I'm like, should Democrats say that? Or should they just say, hey, singling out the transgender issue is wrong? You know, like I'm genuinely asking out of position of vulnerability, not totally understanding the issue. Yeah. You know, the question's not for me. And, and this is why it's not for me. It's because it's an artificially crafted uh, political question that has nothing to do with reality. I don't even know of any Democrats anywhere who is saying that a parent shouldn't have the right to affirm or deny uh, the care that their children get in, in medical care. I have heard that there are parents that think it's an issue for teachers to change the pronouns of your kids in schools without, uh, a, a, you know, without your input. So like if your kid goes to school and says, listen, my name is chastity. Now I'm no longer chance, you know? Um, and I want you to call me this now that it has been an issue in places where teachers have accepted that and just go, gone with it. Okay. Well, you know, you, you have told me what you prefer to be called and that's what we're going to call you this year. And then parents who are not with that, you know, can have an arguable, arguable complaint about it. But in terms of gender affirming care, like a kid goes in and he's, you know, 14 years old and he goes to the hospital and says, I want to become a girl. And 
I don't know of any Democrat anywhere that's saying like that, that should be okay. Look, here's where I agree with you. I think this is not what we should be talking about when it comes to K-12 education. Like there, we have a lot of huge pressing problems, I think. But the reason why I bring it up is because this is what's happening with the Yunkin types is that they are talking about that because it is an effective way to make liberals look radical. I think this is a an, an assumption that we can test in future episodes when we look into the research, which is like, what is the position of liberals on this question of gender affirming care? Not because I think this is like some massive issue where there's like some avalanche of kids trying to get this kind of surgery without their parents' knowledge, but because Republicans are doing this for a reason. Conservatives are doing this for a reason. They sense some vulnerability and they're generally pretty good at that. So my sense is they're seeing some kind of extreme position that they're trying to lean on. But I have a bigger question, which is parental rights generally. Take gender affirming care out of it. You know, they call this the parental rights and education bill. And part of it is like what kind of curriculum we teach at the elementary school level about gender and sexuality and you, you know, you saw the poll polling numbers that I saw. Parents are generally saying, I'm kind of with DeSantis on this. What is our position on parental rights generally? I mean, I've always been like, I'm always going to be for parental rights. And it's also, I mean, one huge reason to be for parental rights is by law, you're parentally responsible. Like you could go to jail for not doing your duty as a parent. There are things you can literally, educational neglect, neglect period, um, they're just things that like you're responsible for. It's written into my state's law that parent, parents are responsible for the intellectual care and development for their kids. And there is punishment for not fulfilling that. So if you're going to have the responsibility, you should have rights. The interesting thing is that nobody's talking about my parental rights. They're talking about white people's parental rights. So this entire parental rights juggernaut is only about white parents. It's not about everybody. It's white, white people versus everybody. And when they're talking about parental rights, they're talking about making sure that white parents and white students are comfortable with what's being taught in schools without consulting any other parents. Because where are my parental rights when you start removing books from the school district and from the library that my kids go to just because you don't think that any kids should be reading them? You, you don't just think that your kids should not read them. You want them pulled out of the library because you think no kids should read about racial oppression, about gender differences, about family structures that you don't agree with. So the whole kind of, you know, white right wing uh, juggernaut is actually what's it's it's faking a parental rights movement right now. I'm for the real per parent rights, the real parental rights, which means no matter where you come from, what your background is, what religion you have, what God you pray to, who you decided to love, how you constructed your family, no matter what books you read that you think are the best ideologies in the whole world, that you don't get a say over everybody else, right? And right now, the dominant population, and this is, what's the, this is the problem with governing by poll, 62% of Americans this and that and the other. 62% of Americans hated Dr. King when he was alive. You know, 70-something percent of Americans thought that interracial marriage was a heresy and that inter kids from interracial marriages were going to ruin America, right? So governing by poll, by poll was always, always has been a way to get the dominant majority to actually find a way to muscle the political system to not be very democratic and not listen to everybody and everybody's voices. I agree with you, but when you say this is just about white parents and it, I think by implication, when you talk about the polling, you're saying like we're leaving out voices of color, but when they get polled, they're, they're just as strong uh, against 
some of this stuff as the white parents. Yeah, the people designing the questions are very good at finding everybody's bigots. So let's just put it this way. When you poll on whether or not we should have black books in libraries uh, by law taken out of schools, there are no polls that show black people support that or brown people or even Asians, right? There are no polls that show, yes, let's pull the black authors out of schools. There's no, no poll that shows the things that are behind divisive concepts are anybody other than white parents. Now, when it comes to trans people, the beauty of the trans issue is you can find bigots against that group of people. So if your whole job in the world is to find scapegoats, like if you have an entire political party that's designed on how can we divide and conquer? How can we find somebody for everybody to hate so that we can win people into our forum? One way to do that is to go after trans people Because now you're going to find bigotry in many different groups, subgroups, even though the main thing that you're pushing is only for one group. That's that's not new, though. That has been happening for years and years and years and years. Started with the Southern strategy. Some would say it started before the Southern strategy. But the strategy of always finding the minority that you can get universal hatred for is an old, old, old tactic. And it's still working as of today. We should stop falling for it. But it... So taking the cynicism out of it, do you think there's a legitimate <laughs> series of questions? How can you no, take but I'm the serious. Out of it? <laughs> but 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 do you think there is a serious set of questions? And I want to expand it beyond the trans population because I do think that they're political punching bags. But a, a, a serious set of questions around how we teach gender and sex, sexuality and when and whether we should put ground ground rules on at what age and the government may have something to say about, all right, maybe we don't start these types of conversations until later. I speak from personal experience. When I was running my school, you may remember this. I got in trouble for teaching a book called City of Thieves in the seventh grade. And it it was nothing about gays or transgender students or anything like that. It was just about having sex. (laughs) And parents, you know, our favorite school board members came after me and a parent, a white parent, by the way, which was rare in my schools, came after us for, uh, not rare that the white parent would come after us, but rare that we would have a white parent, uh, came after <laughs> us and said that it was, you know, offensive that I would teach kids in middle school a, a book that had, you know, that talked about sex and had curse words in it and things like that. And my reaction to them was, hey, this is our charter school. We have the freedom to do this. And here's my theory. My theory is seventh graders are talking about sex, whether it's in this book or not. So I would love them to read great literature and for it to show up. Otherwise, we're going to be reading boring bullshit that doesn't have you know mature real life themes in it. And kids are going to be bored in class. You can take that for what it is and go somewhere else if you don't like that. But the kids love this book. It's a great book. But that was a controversial choice. People got really mad at me about that, you know, both liberals mm-hmm. and conservatives. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. on the side of like teach more, but I'm asking mm-hmm. this because I'm, I don't want to skirt past what can be legitimate issues just because there's some people who are many who are cynical about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think you should skirt past any issues. I think you should call issues what they are. So I just called the issues what they are because I call them as I see them. Right. And, uh, you, you know, like if it was something different than that, because, you know, if you're liberal and you do dumb things, I'm going to call that a liberal dumb thing. If you're conservative and you dumb, do dumb things, I'm going to call that a conservative dumb thing. So this thing around passing laws state by state that pretend that we don't always that we don't already have processes in place in how schools and districts determine what by grade level is acceptable and what isn't. Now, can those processes that we already have in place 
always be improved or thought about? Like, you know, can we think about them at least or whatever? Absolutely. There is a democratic way to make that happen and to do it, but yelling and jumping up and down and shouting about a book that you personally don't like. So you're going to go to school board member and get shouted down by librarians, educators, district leaders, principals, superintendents, other parents, the authors of the book, the companies that actually have vetted the book for certain grade levels. You're right and they're all wrong, right? That's just not the way in my mind. To run a democratic society. I'll give you an example. Recently, there was a mom who wanted this book pulled because it had BLM themes in it. And it was about a black kid's discovery of their inner feelings about, you know, being a, a black kid and how they're interacting with the world. It was in the form of a poem. And at the end, the kid has kind of like a really beautiful realization. It's a book I would want my uh, uh, children to read, my kids to read. But the mom comes to school and says, this is a divisive concept. This is illegal. I don't care what you guys think. I've read it and I don't want my six-year-olds reading this and I don't want my kids reading this and blah, 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 blah. She said that in a school board meeting where there had been multiple librarians, multiple parents, multiple students, multiple educators come to the podium to say, this is an award-winning book. We think it should definitely be in the library. If people don't want to read it, they should not read it. Now think about the democratic dynamic between that one parent who came to raise valid concerns. I have valid concerns about my child reading this or whatnot. There's a process in place, right? I think before people jump to where that mom is, they should at least be educated to know how are things vetted right now. And anybody listening to this, any of our friends and others listening to this who are on the kind of fence Educate yourself then. Do your due diligence. Be a good citizen. As a good citizen, find out what already exists first before you ask questions like these. Should a kid be able to get gender reaffirming assignment uh, treatment without their parents knowing? Educate yourself first to understand what is actually happening first and then answer the question. And it's the same thing with this one around curriculum. You know, do we go too far? That book that you did, first of all, I mean, you were just a wanton leader, Ravi. I mean, you were just out there just like doing whatever you wanted. You had no, no, like, you know, uh, uh, apparently, you know, you had no, no process or whatever. Um, I don't think that that's true. I think you thought about it. I think you thought that there were, you saw that there was merit in that book for the standards that you were teaching and for your kids that you had. And it was a way to expand the kids. You're teaching these kids. They're, you're responsible. I'm sure you did more thinking than just thinking, I want to turn these kids into Marcus, Marxist sex fiends, right? Like, is that yeah. what you did one night, Ravi? Did you sit at no, home and like no, smoke a I cigar and go, you know? Like, but like, here, here's do? the catch-22 of this stuff. Either I hear what you're saying, do the work. And I think I can come back on this episode and future episodes and be like, here are what the state laws say about this. But let's say there is no state law that says, like, basically, let's say all the state laws already say you need to get parental permission to do any kind of surgery. Then I'm like, well, then what is this? Like, then it's not going to make any difference one way or the other. So why even take the bait? You know, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. people are going to be transphobic no matter what. Don't take the bait on this. And so either there, there aren't laws giving parents the rights to sign off on these kinds of surgeries, at which point this is a legitimate debate about like where to draw the line, which I, I think like, I, although I'm generally very pro-trans rights, I, I think it's a very complicated debate. Or the laws do give parents that ability in every state. And at which point I'm like, don't take the bait because this, this law isn't gonna make a difference one way or another, you know? I think we're taking a lot of the bait. <laughs> I think we're taking a ton of the bait. <laughs> like, I think that's, that's really what's happening nationally is like, 
Like it's like stupid bait is just like cable news, kind of like their business. It's what they generate. And it's possible for you to make up something like this in your garage one night and to have it actually be a national thing a couple of weeks right. later. Like the dumbest yeah. possible American conversations. And I think the whole world is laughing at us in some ways uh, when it yeah. comes to these things because we are a marketplace of idiocy right now. Um, I saw right. something yesterday. I, I don't know, you know, maybe this is a little off topic, but I'll say it, you know, this thing around um, China having a different version of TikTok for Chinese kids in China versus the one that, that they, they send elsewhere. So if you're a Chinese kid, you get uh, a time limit on how long TikTok will allow you to view it. And it's all like educational and inspirational and patriotic stuff. Um, the chances that you will become an astronaut <laughs> are incredibly higher if you if you use Chinese TikTok than American TikTok. Americans is the opposite. No time limit, flooded with stupid, inane kind of like misinformation, nothing aspirational and nothing teaching kids to think more. That to me is kind of like what I just said about our market. We're a marketplace of really dumb ideas right now. And we're being governed yeah. by it. That's the scary part, is we're allowing ourselves to be governed by it. Well, let's talk about something not so dumb. Let's talk about what makes us hopeful this week. And I'm going to point to a story from Mauricio Pena from November 3rd in Chalkbeat, all about this program at the North Lawndale College Prep School in Chicago this is a program called the Peace Warrior Program, and what they do is they train students to be conflict mediators, and they profile this remarkable young man named Demarcus Thompson, uh, who, you know, kind of like many people, is, was fed up with some of the violence going on in his neighborhood, and um, you know, probably having you know some terrible things happen to loved ones, and seeing you know his classmates go through the trauma, and he became part of this program where essentially they're training. Uh, students to mediate conflicts, support grieving classmates, and bring peace and happiness to the school by greeting students at the front door, leaving cele celebratory birthday notes on lockers, that kind of stuff. I love this, Chris. Like This is the kind of stuff I want to see more of across the country, no matter what kind of school. I know this happens to be a charter school, but I think this kind of stuff can happen anywhere. Yeah, I hate it. <laughs> what? No. No, you don't. No, you don't. I mean, I feel like it's the lost debate, man. We got to debate everything, I Get think. Get the hell you know? out of like, here. I, I, I actually picked this thinking there is no way you're going to hate this story. Please tell me, Chris. Please tell me how children taking into their own hands to mediate yeah. and, and comfort their friends is bad. So let me be clear. You actually are okay with this program. Uh, to be clear. I am okay Is with this right? program. I'm more than okay. okay with this. Like, listen, let me say this. My my good friend, uh, Charles Cole, lives in Chicago. We just had a show that we did last night. And um, we were talking about violence. And we were talking about Takeoff, you know, um, the Grammy Award winning 28-year-old uh, who was uh, shot five times and died recently. Um, and, you know, it was all over social media. And he's 28 years old, right? And he passes away. And he's not the first or the last this year when it comes to uh, hip hoppers that we have lost, you know, notable people. And in the middle of describing that, Charles said, you know what, we have had 600 murders in Chicago this year had 14 over one weekend recently. And, and that's where this school is. This Peace Warrior, uh, this Peace Warrior program at North Lawndale Prep is in Chicago, where people are often criticized for, well, I'd never hear you guys talking about doing something about that. You're always, you know, uh, right. talking about the system and whatever. And no, this is young people um, attempting to be part of the solution 
themselves not falling into nihilism, which I think is really smart. I mean, it's really good. And the thing that made me go off on that tangent to like fake because I side nihilism is, was the is, word is, 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 that came to mind, by the way, when your previous position was out there. <laughs> I was like, if this isn't good, I don't know what the hell is in schools. Well, sorry, keep going. And this is. Well, this is the point that I think needs to be made is we're talking about this other stuff like CRT and all of that. The, the, the next part that came after that was going after things like SEL, social emotional learning, things that schools are teaching kids to stop violence, like to self-regulate, to be thinking people, to, um, to learn how to diffuse crisis and, and to regulate themselves are un also under attack. Like that whole national yeah. effort that we talked about is also under attack. And here, this is a very positive story of how it's apolitical. It's just a smart thing to engage young people in and to teach them. Be your own, like, uh, and you ran a school. It'd be interesting to know what you think about this because I've been thinking about this a lot. A lot of times when you see the videos of like school fights or bad things going on in schools, there's a lot of bystanders around. Like it's yes. like typical now for kids to pull out their cameras and egg on. Yeah. And, and we yeah. haven't found a way to teach them, don't be bystanders and don't be participants yes. in egging it on, be peace warriors. Well, the, my favorite version of this is this, this was written about a year ago by Sydney Page in the Washington Post, a program called Dads on Duty in Louisiana. And mm -hmm. so after 23 mm -hmm. students were arrested in the span of three days in one school, one guy just got fed up with it and he started a group with five fathers called Dads on Duty. And they just started showing up to the school and breaking up fights, which actually like getting there before they had to break up fights. Basically the next month after that, there were no violent incidents on campus after they founded this program. Mm -hmm. And that was from a year ago. I couldn't find any updated update to the story, but this is the kind of shit I love because when you talk about a school should teach the basics, sometimes this is the precondition to a school teaching the basics. Cause if you got 23 students arrested in a school, that's not an environment where kids can learn. And it's hard to ask teachers in a Louisiana school, we know what that funding looks like, to run a classroom of 25 kids, break up a fight, get those kids away from each other, get them down to the right person, go back to the classroom, teach, right? So if, if you've got parents who are invested and want to come to school, we should be paying those parents. I think every, mm -hmm. like, you know, districts should be piloting this program all across the country. I love the idea of parents. It doesn't have to be just dads. Like, as we know, some of the scariest people I've ever met in my life are some of my moms out there, you know, who one look from your mom, sometimes a mom would ask to sit in the back of the classroom if a kid was acting up and that kid would be just fine. Mm -hmm. And I'm all for that. I had a lot of my charter friends who would be like, we don't want to let the parents in because, you know, sometimes they could be micromanaging the learning. And that is a real risk. I want to I want to name that. Like you get the wrong parent in the classroom, it could be a disaster. But I was generally pretty open about parents coming in, uh, especially for the students who struggled the most. Because look, if the parents that invested, let's just do it. Yeah, you know, like, so you made me think of a couple of things. The first one is, I think my teacher friends got it all wrong when it, when we were talking maybe a year or two ago about cameras in the classroom. And, oh my God, I don't want to be part of a surveillance state and all that, blah, blah. Listen, if you had ring cameras in uh, every classroom where things would uh, go off on your parents' phone and you knew that, like, that their phone would, yeah. like, at different points in the day flash up, I think that student behavior would improve greatly oh, yeah. if, uh, like, quickly. I think teachers teachers understandably don't like police officers don't love body cams or whatever. I think ring cameras in classrooms for parents to see what your kids are doing. I heard all this talk over the pandemic about, 
well, the pandemic meant that parents finally got to look into the classroom and to see what wasn't going on. No, 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 no. You had your kid at home. That was like, you got one version of a look in. You don't get the look at what your kid really is doing throughout the day that teachers get to see all day long. Right. The disruptions, the kind of whatever. Um, I agree with you. I believe in the dads as one part of this. Like it, this was such a great group and I interviewed them and they were like really just so they were loving and firm. They like, you know, saw it as yeah. their duty as dads to be there and to stop this nonsense. And they had credibility, like they had credibility with the students in the ways that like uh, resource officers don't like the kids knew them from the hood. Like they knew them like these are your dads and your friends and your friends, dads and whatever. And they were able to talk to the kids from what they told me, they were able to find out things before other people could find yes. them out. That's like the key. Who was planning to do what? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was amazing. I often gave this presentation to my teachers. I called it uh, "From Cop to Coach," where I talked about how you need to get out of the cop mentality into the coach mentality, and the coach is kind of like that. The coach is somebody who's going to get the information before anybody else is going to see somebody slacking off in practice a little bit, and before it blows up, is going to pull that person aside, et cetera. And that's what these these guys did. And it just has to be the right person, right? Like this, the devil's in the details here. It's true of mm -hmm, the Peace mm -hmm. Warriors program. It's true with these dads. If you put people who don't belong near there, the, the program will backfire. But the authenticity of this is the key, which is like we should be giving grants out to schools, and this should be part of like the kind of the equivalent of the alumni associations and the PTAs, right? This is more important than any PTA in a lot of schools is having parents there. And I think as long as the parents know their limits, right? And the parents know, like, respect, you know, a, a certain level of autonomy of the teacher to do their thing. Because this dovetails with what we were talking about before, right? Like, if you, this is why I actually think liberals should take the language of their conservative uh, opposition, which is transparency. What did you talk about? Parents should be able to see what's happening in the classroom, um, parental rights, right? We could be like, all right, like part of the parental right is to be involved in a certain limited way in their school. You could start to articulate an alternative version of the same concepts that the conservatives are are advocating and say, all right, let me let me meet you. Like there's some subset of you that are genuinely interested in these concepts. Let me meet you where I see this and let's see if we can come to some agreement on what these concepts look like in practice. I wonder if I, I'm, maybe I'm more optimistic. I wonder whether this could be our grand bargain on some of these concepts is stuff like this. I don't like think this, we should you know? strike, you know, and first of all, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a Democrat, whatever. So when I say we, I just mean I'm an American. So I'm talking about Americans. I don't think we should make bargains with uh, antisocial people. I think actually the things that Democrats and left-leaning people can do of which I have to say I'm not one, so you, you could take the advice with the Yeah, with what the are you? I think at some point so, we're going to so, have to so, answer so, that so, question. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is what I think. I think that people do more than not. They trust schools more than conservatives think they do. They like their teachers more than conservatives think they do. They like the idea of community and school communities, and we're all in it together and democratic kind of groups more than the anti-social right does. So this message around us against the teachers and us against the schools, and I don't co-parent with the government, just think about that. Like I don't co-parent with the government and you just told me about dads on duty who are actually literally working with the schools to make things better for their kids in the schools, right? Like there think about those the difference between those two ways of looking at like the the, the same thing. The left-leaning uh democratic kind of community-based way of seeing the world is we all do better when we all do better. 
um, the the kind of jackass antisocial Joe Rogan way of seeing the world is we're all independent fighters and we you know we're all in it for whatever we can get and it's us versus them and there's always a them and the thems keep growing. But you've been you've been a proponent. I mean, I've listened to your interview with Reason, the libertarian guys over there, right. uh, and. Like you have been very libertarian over time. I haven't done a, ch- a libertarian check on you recently, but I do think there's I, I do think that there's the caricature of the libertarian, and then I think there's a libertarian who has ample reason to distrust the government. They've let them down repeatedly, you know. And I think a lot of people, whether they're you know people of color or white people, there are, there there are a lot of people out there who have really good reasons to not trust the government. Whether it's the quality of their school, what you know, something you've talked about a lot, which is the teachers' unions and their hold on the public education system, which there's probably nobody out there with more receipts than you, you know, going after them and their role in the education system. You know, to just like, does mass transit work? Does my public housing work in New York City? Right? Like, there's just a ton of things to make somebody say, you know what? I just don't trust the government. I'm gonna be more libertarian, more than like. I think some of the antisocial reasons that you're talking about. Well, first of all, like I'm still libertarian. There's a big L libertarian. There's little L libertarians. I used to be a member of the Libertarian Party, which is different yeah. now. That's been taken off by, and that could be a different show. We could talk about this in a different show. That party has now been yeah. taken over by like MAGA people for the first time in its existence. Like it's now taking sides on things that it never did before. So that's different. Like then, you know, small L libertarianism. Even within libertarians, you have antisocial people and you have communal people. You have people who believe uh, – who are like civil libertarians who believe in good government and clean government and clean elections and uh, every voice matters, every voice counts. Your right as an American citizen entitles you to a set of things, one of which is uh, free and fair elections that give you a voice in the government that you work in. So when you start seeing things like people trying to separate folks from their vote, or start misinforming. This is the other thing about libertarians. They're also very well-read people very often. They're also yeah. often intellectuals, right, who don't suffer fools very honestly. And we're believing we're trading in some really stupid, toxic, antagonistic values right now in a lot of these discussions. So it's got to be a bad time for a lot of thinking libertarians uh, and educated libertarians because the public is just on some noxious gas of really bad thinking right now. Um, you just gave a, a great example. I far would rather people showing up as dads to a school saying, hey, uh, kids are getting into fights here and we've got a solution and we want to be part of making it better for our kids. And we're here. We're, we own this community. We, we are going to be good citizens. We're going to help clean yeah. this thing up. Then sitting on uh, as keyboard warriors at night on Twitter, throwing missives about how bad the government is. Right. If I think right. about which Agreed. of the two people or how bad trans kids are or how we're trying to be indoctrinate kids to be Marxists and all of these things, I far would rather people show up to their park board, their library board, their school board, their their elections, their voting, whatever, and start holding things the, uh, to account, start holding the schools to account and themselves. Well, like that's this gets to the sh- you know, what do you do as a citizen? Show up, do something, you know? This gets to the sort of the school board politics that happened uh, earlier this year and last year where their parents would show up shouting each other down at the school boards. And often I'm like, what do you, what's your solution? What are you, what are you arguing for here? 
It's just political arsons for the most part. So I'm with you on that. Let's transition to what makes us think though, Chris. The Wall Street <laughs> Journal, October 30th, had an article by Alicia Finley, uh, an op-ed that said, why Randy Weingarten supports Harvard's discrimination Racial preferences help offset the inequities in K-12 education that teachers' unions have created. Now, let me set this up here for a second because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, know, I know where we're going to go. But I think essentially what she's saying is the teachers' unions have fucked up K-12 education to such a terrible extent that they don't have a, lot, a leg to stand on when they start lecturing um, the rest of us or the higher education system about what a firm role affirmative action should play in solving educational inequities. Now, I think the premise about the teachers unions fucking up the K-12 system, I think is part, I think one could argue about how much of the role they have. Uh, I sense that you probably still believe in your heart that they've fucked up a lot, maybe not as much as you believed a couple of years ago, from what I understand. I think when she starts talking about why parents leave the system I start to have some issues, but I'm going to pause there to just gut check whether that particular assumption you're still on board with, which is that teachers unions have a lot to be ashamed about in their role in public education. You know, (laughs) I think we should think about issues in a smart way. So if we're talking about Harvard's uh, case with the government regarding whether or not they should be able to create a diverse learning environment at their private college, um, I don't think that has anything to do with Randy Weingarten or teachers unions. I think that is a massive Wall Street Journal conservative person who uh, graduated all of 11 years ago from college and now knows everything about the world, um, but knows nothing about the history of why colleges need to consistently work on making sure that they get a diverse pool of applicants who are both two things, qualified, let's just start there, qualified to attend and also would add to the environment of learning for everybody, meaning a rich learning environment. You can end up, we talked about this one in the previous shows, you can end up with a school that's 100% white or 100% white and Asian and do some strict kind of, we're just going to use one measurement of how we let people in. And, you know, it kind of, that one measurement favors a certain group, but we're just going to leave it at that because we're going to call that meritocracy. You can do that if you want to. Like if you want to become Liberty University where all your uh, students look the same and you think that that's a quality learning environment, uh, fine, right? Because that's Liberty University is a private organization. Let them, let them do that. Uh, if Harvard wants to take in 15 or 20 or 30 different factors uh, that make sure that they're going to get a pool of qualified and diverse candidates from all over the world, meaning if I go there, my kid... I don't care what my kid is background is. They're going to see a world fund of information and see all these different yeah. young people. That has nothing to do with Randy. That has nothing to do with teachers I think, unions. Uh, I think Harvard that. tricked it. I think Harvard tricked you, Chris. You want to know why? I think they tricked you. Uh, well, talk they about tricked Yale, you. Cause you're an Ivy guy. They tricked Tell you. me. No, I mean, no, they you tricked you. About it, right? Here's so, what they did. Here's what yeah. they did. Harvard discriminated against Asian Americans. And I'll read you yeah. something to just uh, one of the many pieces of evidence that came out in trial 
to demonstrate that they discriminated against Asian Americans. Let's put affirmative action aside because that wasn't really what the first trial was about. It was just about, hey, are you discriminating against Asian Americans? And in some cases at the, to benefit whites in some cases. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if you Mm -hmm. need any evidence of how much they care about diversity, look at 30, 40% legacy students in their school. Like if they really cared Mm -hmm. about diversity, they would get rid of that. Uh, Well, that's part of diversity, really rich people. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And those people (laughs) happen to be what, Chris? Are those... Are those, is that Barack Obama's children? Uh, but okay. Uh, Could be. So, so I interviewed this woman, Jenny Sue Kirsten, who's a Harvard Law professor who was at the trial. And yeah, yeah. she talked about how at the trial, uh, the dean of admissions, this guy, William Fitzsimmons, uh, was asked about this thing called sparse country, which is... Harvard had been... Uh, and this was something that goes back. We had talked about it previously about how they had too many according to them, Jewish students. So they created all sorts of tricks, including geographic diversity because Jewish students were clustered in cities. So they count all these tricks that looked like they were neutral on the questions of religion and race, but they were actually used to discriminate against people. The Dean of Admissions was asked why they had this policy where they would send sparse country students with a PSAT score of 1310 or higher. They would send them letters asking them to apply to Harvard. Was asked on the stand, why and Asians would have to get a 1380 to get that letter, whereas white students and all other students, 1310. They raised the PSAT score for Asian students and was asked, like, how could you explain this? And the guy, was, the guy said, Asian students, you know, maybe they just don't have the same connection to sparse country as others was our theory. Now, that's fucked up. Like, I'm sorry, like, I don't know how long an Asian, you know, what if they were an Asian American family that went out West during the gold rush, for example, and worked out there? I have no idea how long they've been out there. Never mind all the data around how the academic ratings showed one thing, and then the personal ratings showed a whole different thing. And when you looked at the qualities that were being used against Asian Americans, it's things like effervescence, leadership, stuff like that. Whereas if you look at extracurricular activities, you look at academics, you look at GPAs, and you look at interviews with alumni, they all showed that the Asian American population was performing quite well. But just the one subjective criteria that they had, which is this personality traits, they were rating the Asians lower than anything else as a way to balance them out. Now, what Harvard did to trick people like you, Chris, is they made it they made it seem like it was about black students against Asian students. And they totally, like, they, they were on the hot seat for a second, and then they grabbed hold of this balloon called uh, affirmative action and said, hey, no, we're defending affirmative action. We're in, this is not about whether we uh, discriminate against Asian Americans. And now they've got the NAACP, tons of Fortune 500 companies, progressive organizations, the Biden administration, all defense, defending their policies. Maybe you. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. This was about def- discriminating against Asian Americans. I believe in affirmative action. I don't think this, is, this case had to be about the end of affirmative action, but we've let it be that because we've come to the defense of Harvard and never in the, from the beginning of this took seriously that Asian Americans were being discriminated against. I mean, so in what you just said, um, blacks, the NAACP, Biden, Civil rights. Well, not blacks folks. with a capital no. B, but like, yeah. Well, uh, let's give let's give it a small B. Blacks uh, and long-term civil rights watchers who have defended a policy called affirmative action that has given colleges the ability to use uh, wide-ranging criteria for interest into college that would get them a more mixed population. 
than if they were to use just standard one or two dimensional ways that they're all wrong, but they're all together on this one thing that has been around for a very long time. And it has like affirmative action has a very specific history, right? So I actually don't care about all these politics that we're talking about right now. I care about whether or not a university has the right or the ability by law to be able to consider a wide range of criteria for enrollment when they enroll kids and young people into their colleges to create with the specific goal of creating a diverse and inclusive learning environment for many different kinds of Americans. That's what I care about. But you could do that without discriminating against Asian Americans. And what I would love to hear from my friends in the civil rights communities is a little bit of allyship here. Because what I just read should be appalling to anybody. Oh, I think it's appalling if you're specifically if you're specifically trying to um, to discriminate against Asian Americans, right? Uh, that to me, in any group, doesn't make any sense as as anything anybody should support. However, you can make anything look like discrimination when really your goal is to create a, a, a reflective pool of Americans in an environment. You can have white people say, listen, we used to have 98% of the seats and you changed the criteria and now we're only getting 60% of the seats. Still the majority, but we're only getting 60 now. And that will look like discrimination. Right. But this wasn't this wasn't 90%. This wasn't even a majority of seats. And to me, you can have the conversation about balance, right? But what I'm saying is there was evidence of intent, specifically as it relates to Asian Americans and in a way that even benefited white students. So we're not talking about remedying some kind of historic segregation. Actually, for affirmative action purposes, in the late 70s, that policy is gone. In the Baki decision, I interviewed Ted Shaw recently, that, who used to be the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and he agreed that going back to the late 70s, affirmative action as we know it has effectively been gone. Because mm -hmm. at that point, they created the diversity rationale instead of a rationale based on historic discrimination. And mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. point, it stopped being about what the legacy of slavery or anything like that. And it became what kind of employees do we create, which is why Meta, Apple, yada, yada. It's about both the First Amendment rights of the university and the diverse of, diversity of the workforce, so which is how Harvard can get away with, for instance, discriminating against Asian Americans while keeping their legacy policies intact. Because if this were about remedying historic discrimination, that would be a totally bullshit combination, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like- mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Well, I guess we're getting a little afield on this, but I guess we don't really need to go into the Randy thing. No, I think the Randy thing was important, though, because listen to everything we just talked about. And that that Wall Street Journal article made it all about Randy and unions. Right. right. What 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 a clever way to distract from everything we just talked about. We just talked about actually right. what literally is at issue and it has no easy answers. And like I'm sympathetic to like any of the groups that feel like they're going to be. Uh, purposely targeted for discrimination, including Asian Americans and white Americans who come from lower incomes. So all I'm like thinking about, though, is if I want a really good university, do I want the ability to make it reflective of the United States? Or do I want to create a system where it, you get one kind of people and that's considered, there, there's considered there's no educational value in it actually being a mixed group, right? I believe there's educational value to having Harvard's pool be reflective. And Harvard's putting out a good number of people that are gonna lead in society. So no, I would not be okay if all of a sudden all of their people were you know, white and Asian and everybody else was not coming But that's never been the you world, know, so, so never. I, I, I'm yeah. not saying it is or isn't. I'm saying 
to stop that from happening, you have to be somewhat affirmative in your action about making sure that you're crafting a pool of people who look like America. And there are schools in the United States with selective admissions that do become 90% white and Asian, and they're considered to be public schools. And no one talks about the fact that they don't resemble America. Uh, first of all, the law is the law. You are not allowed to discriminate against a race in the way they did the Asians. And, and that is going to come out in this court ruling whether or not they rule on affirmative action. Like you're just simply not allowed to do that. But, and that's text of the Civil Rights Act and any fair reading of the Equal Protection Clause. And I think especially read in light of the fact that they refuse to start with legacy admissions, which is dumb, mostly white rich kids are getting into these schools like Jared Kushner. And, well, that was pretty you racist. Know, <laughs> Shit. I'm just saying. Like, look, I want smart white kids to get in. I got nothing. I'm half white myself. I'm just saying, like, if we're talking about race... Why yeah, don't we start yeah. there? But this is where I'm saying some of y'all got tricked on this is my final argument on this. We don't really have time yeah. to bash on Randy. We'll, we'll talk about her another day. I think you're getting soft on the unions, but we'll talk about that another time. Maybe we'll close this one out. Uh, well, listen, uh, folks, <laughs> <laughs> these are worthy debates and we can keep going. We should go back and forth about these. As good citizens, we should debate these issues. Whether we're passionate about it or not, we should actually keep the level of debate at a smart level. Let's keep the first thing the first thing. Let's talk about what's actually at issue in the issues. And let's not get like the cat with the laser pointer, uh, just diverted <laughs> by kind of the superfluous parts of the, the story or the arguments. We just talked about several things today that actually I think you could get to the heart of. The affirmative action debate is literally not about teachers unions or teachers or any of those things. It's about how colleges and universities select their applicants in a way that either is more reflective of the United States or not reflective. And as Ravi points out, there are some problems uh, with the system. There, there's some problems with the way that we, we decide which books and which curriculum should go into schools. There's some problems with how we select teachers and how we actually set up schools. These are all like worthy things to debate about, but don't get lost in the stupid part of the de debate. And there's always going to be a stupid part of the debate. I just think we should all ask ourselves, as good as citizens, am I in the shallow end of the pool? Because if I am, I'm going to want to swim over to the deep end. Where Ravi and Chris are with the uh, Citizen Stewart Show. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. And we appreciate you um, for sharing the show. Many of you have, and I've heard from other people that the show is being shared. So thank you. Keep doing that. Share it with others. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. And make sure to leave a uh, leave some comments and leave a review. Five-star review. That really helps us. Five-star review. Five-star reviews or, you know, whatever you think is like, you oh, know, stop whatever. It. I don't know. No, yeah. yeah. No. Only five-star reviews. <laughs> okay. Only five-star reviews, as says Ravi. It's this like anything lower the, than that is like an Uber rating, like for four-star. It's the end of us. Don't even get me started. I left a service because I found out that my rating wasn't top-notch like it should have been. So you lost the customer. Anyways, thank you all so much for listening to the Citizen Stewart Show. This is our third uh, um, episode, and I'm so excited to be a part of the Lost Debate Network because it offers these kind of great conversations that we're going to continue having. Peace out.